2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. There's particular excitement when the Indigo Girls perform here in their hometown, and that will happen soon. On October 2nd, the duo of Amy Ray and Emily Sellers will appear, at the Amplify Decatur Music Festival. When Amy Ray released her last solo album, Holler, in 2018, she joined me in studio and spoke about the deeply personal songs she wrote for the album, which were inspired by traditional country, southern rock, gospel, and bluegrass. We'll listen back to that interview with Amy Ray later in the program. First, some of country music's greatest legends, like Tim McGraw, Garth Brooks, and Willie Nelson, have gay women to thank for their success. A new documentary, Invisible, Gay Women in Southern Music, shares the personal stories of gay country singer-songwriters who've kept their sexuality under wraps in order to remain in the music industry. The documentary will screen September 25th as part of the festival out on film. The festival director is Jim Farmer. He joins us now via Zoom with the film director of Invisible, T.J. Parcell. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much for having us, Lois. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Jim, can you tell us a bit about this year's lineup? This year is our first hybrid festival,
0: meaning we're having screenings in theater we're also having screenings virtually as well virtually was very popular last year i'm very proud of the lineup we're opening with a film called firebird which is sort of a cold war thriller about a soldier and a fighter pilot in a love triangle uh, of course we have invisible gay women in southern music which i absolutely adore we we saw the film last year and just have not been waiting to screen this film um, our closing night film is another excellent documentary called Keep the Cameras Rolling, The Pedro Zamora Way, which is about Pedro Zamora, who uh, was on The Real World and became famous through that, and then later became uh, famous as a gay activist. In between, we have 145 other films, comedies, dramas, films from around the world, films from our backyard, just a great
2: array and diversity of films. TJ, let's talk about Invisible. How would you summarize it?
3: Well, Invisible is a story of a number of gay women, uh, singers, songwriters in Nashville, who, in spite of a number of institutional and other forces that seem to almost conspire to keep them down, they persevered anyhow.
2: As a man, did you find it challenging in any way to capture the vulnerability and the personal stories these women share?
3: A friend of mine came to me when I first moved to Nashville and uh, he, he called me up and he said, TJ, I've got this idea for a film. I'd love to talk to you about it. And, you know, this was someone who had nothing to do with film. And so when I met with him, I have to say my expectations were kind of low. And uh, I said, OK, what do you got? And he says, gay women in country music. There is this entire network of gay women songwriters who have written for everyone and many of them are my friends. And I just looked at him and I thought, wow, what a great idea. And the fact that Bill had the relationship with a number of these women gave us access. I I, I immediately, I was kind of struck with what that must've been like for them and how they navigated, I can't imagine a more repressive industry than country music. Personally, I had spent years in software business in the eighties and nineties. It was a very competitive industry and I'm a gay man, but I knew I couldn't be out. Part of my job was to build relationships with folks and talking about my boyfriend was not gonna be building a lot of relationships. So for me, it was a business decision to put my sexuality on the shelf and I know what that cost me. So I think coming from that place, I was instantly curious and wanted to have some of these conversations with these women. And from our very first interview, Uh, with Mary Gaucher, which, by the way, was three weeks from that coffee before I was sitting down with Mary in front of a camera. And I think I was was just blown away uh, by how open and vulnerable she was willing to be. I think both Bill and I sat back and thought, wow. So to answer your question directly, it was pretty clear that this was a woman's story. And even though Bill and I are both gay men, we realized that we're still men even though, you know, we're gay and we have that empathy. So it was important to us to hire some key uh, department heads that were women. So my director of photography is a gay woman and my editor is a woman. And I I think that was very helpful for us because we needed a woman's uh, insight, I think, into some of these issues. I, I think almost immediately when we were filming, having Sandra Chandler as our cinematographer, I think that helped set these ladies at ease. And then, of course, the editor in documentary filmmaking, I think it's sort of a, a three-legged stool. You've got your director, your editor, and your cinematographer. And, you know, it's, it's a very collaborative uh, endeavor. You know, these, these were both very strong women and I think they helped add a, uh, a layer of understanding that helped us to go as deep as we I, I think we are able to do in the film.
2: Was this the first time for some of these country musicians opening up about their sexuality, the first time they open up on record?
3: Uh, Kai Fleming, it was her first time, for sure. Kai Fleming is... Uh, a songwriter who's in the Nashville Songwriting Hall of Fame. She's written so many number one hits, she doesn't know how many she's written. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's actually now being inducted into the, the uh, National Songwriting Hall of Fame. Kai has never been out. Kai, when she came to Nashville, she had almost immediate success. Within six months, she had a couple of number one hits on uh, Barbara Mandrell's album. Her and her writing partner were Songwriters of the Year. So for Kai Fleming, the stakes were immediately high for her and and she knew that she could not be out. So what Kai did was she put her sexuality on the shelf. So our film is the first time she's ever put herself out there and that was not an easy decision for her. I
2: can imagine. In the film, Mary Gershaw said, sexuality isn't relevant to what I do. Many of the women in the film just wanted to have the ability to write or play their music and their sexuality not matter. Do you think that they had to hide their dating more than if they were men?
3: Oh, definitely more than if they were men. Country music, especially, is such a misogynistic uh, industry.
2: And not friendly to gay men either.
3: No, Uh, And in fact, that was a conscious decision on our part early on where we thought, you know what, let's just focus on gay women. It might be a little less threatening for some than for us to uh, tackle gay men as well. But I have to say that not long into the project, I began to scratch my head and wonder how much of what these women were dealing with was because they were gay and how much of it was because they're women.
2: Intersectionality, once again.
3: Women are are very underrepresented in country music, and particularly in radio airplay. And in country music, especially radio, has a lot to do with how successful they'll be as artists. Uh, There was a study done in 2019 on uh, radio airplay, and only 13% of radio airplay was women. There used to be a rule in country radio that you could only play two women for every 10 men and never two in a row.
2: That's just staggering when you think of some of the country and the Nashville legends, how many of them are women.
3: Well, and I think what struck me or what I found really interesting in the very beginning was the fact that of these performing artists, the large catalog of songs that were written by women and written by gay women. I think in the beginning of the project, I I was almost uh, a little giddy thinking, God, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when some of these good old boys find out how much of their beloved music was written by lesbians.
2: Although, was it Kai who said she thought of herself as a screenwriter?
3: Bonnie Baker.
2: Bonnie Baker said that.
3: Yeah, she says, if I do my job right, people will be up for awards uh, at the end of every year. She's written number one hits for Reba McIntyre and for... uh, Hunter Hayes, the song Invisible was one of those. That's a song that's about bullying. She actually wrote that about or in response to her son being bullied at school. But over the course of the film, what happened was Bonnie, in in no small part because of her involvement in the film, she had this burst of creativity where she sat down and wrote a series of songs that were deeply personal. Dry County is an original song in the film that she wrote about her her own life. So she made this transition from writing for other people to start writing for herself and and to help tell some of her own story. That was one of the most um, powerful experiences in, in the making of the film was to watch her go through this process of going deep within herself to write a song that was so deeply personal. When she sent me the demo of the song, I could tell from the very first chord that this was something, you know, deeply, deeply personal. And I went to her and I said, Bonnie, I would love to track the development of this song when you go into the studio. And she really struggled with it because it opened up for her some wounds that she did not even realize she had been carrying around. And uh, at one point she dropped out of the project and uh, it was actually the night before we were going to go into the studio and film her. And um, she just, couldn't do it. And she dropped out. And we had to back off and give her time to process. And about a year, a year and a half later, she came back and she says, I finished the song. We went into the studio and, and recorded her.
2: On a certain level, you must have felt that you were like a therapist in that process.
3: It doesn't hurt that I'm married to a therapist oh, or, okay. <laughs> or the fact that I've, I've spent decades in therapy myself. So
2: Okay, so then you can also talk about the difficulties these musicians faced in trying to express their true selves when they had to stay hidden. I mean, how did writing music help them?
3: I think Mary Gaucher puts it best in the film. She says, you know, the deeply personal is universal. A song has to be vulnerable if it's going to be any good. I think that was one of the things I was struck with in the course of making the film and observing these women and talking to them about their process. The level and the degree to which they're willing to just rip open their chests and reveal who they are. That's great songwriting. That's the stuff that moves us. They have to do that work. They have to be willing to go there, and they do. I think that was the thing that I was very curious about, was how do they do that at the same time? For those women that, that were in the closet that weren't able to be who they were, how did they navigate that? How did they balance those two things? I, and I, I, I hope we, we show some of that in, in the film. I hope people understand that.
2: Very much so. After Shelley Wright came out as gay, she was taken off country radio when Diane Davidson wrote a song about a woman. Her career was destroyed. T.J., you mentioned the misogynistic character of Nashville country music. Who are the villains? Who's destroying these musicians' careers? Producers or the audience, the bookers? Who who, who is responsible?
3: You know, at the end of the day, I hope that Invisible serves as a uh, indictment of the patriarchy of country music. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not in the industry. I, I think that I was privileged to spend time with this group of women and to explore with them what each of their journeys were. It just became clearer and clearer that women are underrepresented in the industry. It's not just radio, it's um, throughout the industry. There's gatekeepers throughout It's It's not unlike the film business. I think that as I've been readying the film for the festival circuit and looking to engage uh, sales agents, there are so many uh, layers of gatekeepers that are men. It's incredibly frustrating. I was talking with a couple of large sales agents and they were bringing the film into to look at. And I was like, do, do you have any women on that team at all that can look at this and give you a woman's perspective? I think clearly country radio is one of the villains. I think country radio has way too much power in country music to have a career. You need radio airplay. It's, it's controlled by two or three corporations. A lot of the program managers and a lot of the on-air personalities, they're men. And when we started to um, hear about uh, some of the sexual harassment that goes on with the women on the radio circuit, it's appalling. You know, I wonder how, much, how many uh, great talents we may have lost because they just didn't have the stomach for that.
2: Hmm. Jim, I read that this year's Aran Film Festival will be available in the theater and virtually, as you said at the beginning of our conversation. How can viewers watch these films?
0: We open September 23rd and we we run through October 3rd. We have a number of films that will be available for streaming literally the first day. The way that it works for the other films, like Invisible, will debut September the 25th in theater, and the next day we'll have a streaming window for a week. So you'll go to www.outonfilm.org and pick a film, and it will give you options for seeing the film in theater, as well as viewing options to uh, stream it at home as well.
2: Jim Farmer is the festival director of Out on Film. He was joined by T.J. Parcell, director of Invisible, Gay women in Southern music, which will be screened on Saturday. The festival will run from September twenty-third through October third. You can find more information about this year's lineup on our website, wabe.org/citylight. In a moment, we'll hear from a stellar gay southern folk rock artist, Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In 2018, I sat down with the Grammy Award winning folk rock artist Amy Ray to talk about her solo album, Holler. Since then, she's released several singles and an album titled Look Long. With her Indigo Girls music partner Emily Saliers, Holler is a mix of country, southern rock, mountain music, gospel, and bluegrass. When we spoke live in studio, Amy talked about the North Georgia poet Byron Herbert Reese, who inspired one of the songs on her album.
4: I first discovered him, I live in up in Dahlonega, and I first discovered his poetry through a documentary that I saw that someone had made up there that I saw at the little theater up there at the Holly Theater. And then I went and read as many poems and books as I could and and just read about his life. He, he died rather young. He was a farmer uh, by trade and a poet. And he got pretty well known, but he had tuberculosis and he struggled with poverty and he Committed suicide young. His both his parents had died from TB. And but the thing that strikes me about him is just his poetry is is incredible. It's classic, you know. And he he was also writing during a time when a lot of things were burgeoning up about race. And so there were also things in his short like books and some fiction that he wrote that was tackling some of those issues as well. And he spoke for the for the ones that couldn't speak, including nature, including people that had no voice. Um, so he's a beautiful man and he just, he inspired a song on this record, but he inspired a lot of my writing after I started reading him because I just, um, it gave me even more attachment to where I I live, you know, and where I call home and stuff.
2: And part of that comes through resoundingly, well, much of that, of the sense of place comes through resoundingly, but what's so refreshing about your take on the country and living in the country is your inclusive attitude. I was hoping you would perform fine with the dark. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Do you want to talk about it before you play it or after? Uh, Either way. (laughs) Because it's not only about light and darkness in the literal sense, but it's also a metaphor for race. Yes, it is. Yes. So, Why don't you play it and then talk about the lyrics?
4: All those metaphors you learned in high school Dark and light, it's wrong and right It never made sense to me Here's what I can see can't see the stars if there's too much light ain't nothing like holding you in the middle of the night after getting burned by the sun and a hard day's work baby I'm fine with the dark ain't nothing like a blackout in New York City all those lights you looking pretty I'm walking down Broadway Here's what I can say Can't see the stars If this. too much light Ain't nothing like Holding you in the middle of the night After getting burned by the sun In a hard day's work Baby, I'm fine with the dark Tossed my coin in, To that wishing well And jumped right in after it As far as I could tell That great void was Full of infinity dark As a fear of Endless possibilities Black as a moonless Woods of my unsung prayer Black as the velvet Elvis of my repair Black as the color of my true love's head. Yeah, well, everybody's talking about that gray, white light they see in the end. If you live right, and I don't know about that, but I know what I need. See the stars, this. too much light Ain't nothing like holding you in the middle of the night After getting burned by the sun The hard life's work, Baby, I'm fine with the dark Baby, I'm fine with the dark Baby, I'm fine with the dark Baby,
2: Oh
0: a morning man. voice. I morning it's voice. Breathtaking. It's <laughs>
2: magnificent. And okay, this is very personal. I never got why Dark was a bit, you know, why what, what you know, dark comedy. Why why is Dark bad And I too wonder is that a racial slur?
4: Yeah. Well, it's weird because it's it's like even within you know, you would even hear Martin Luther King Jr. talk about the dark and the light too. Yes. But I think there's different there's a nuance to it so that we but we were brought up I think in school a lot of us and throughout time western civilization to equate you know dark with evil yeah and and black with evil black dogs black cats black people you know it's very it's it to me it the the most beautiful thing was when Nina Simone came out with that's why i reference it in this black is the color of my true love's hair so powerful because at the time it was it was definitely a statement of race oh of course i mean and we and it was like so subversive cuz she took this old song that was like a like a folk song from scottish isles or something you know and she just turned it on its head and made it this statement where yeah black is beautiful and it was a time when that was coming was going to come into into light for us to that saying you know and so and i was thinking about how we're just taught that we were hammered over the head with it you know in all of our english classes <laughs> you know with the metaphorical language but also about the peacefulness of darkness and yeah. and it's really also about the yin and yang and how we need both to understand the other and you know and that um and i was thinking about you know laborers and up where i live when i You know, drive up in the middle of the summer and see people out picking crops or whatever in in their garden. And I just think about, you know, at the end of the day, how good it feels to get out of the sun
2: and lay down in your bed in the complete pitch black. Yes, because white light, bright, searing sunlight is not comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So
4: it's all about the it's about a lot. of, And it's about, you know, the darkness of the void being a beautiful thing because it's infinite possibilities. It's not supposed to be scary.
2: If you've just tuned in, this is City Lights on WABE. Our guest is singer songwriter Amy Ray. Her album is called Holler. I have a particular favorite track on this recording. Can we hear a little bit of Sparrow's Boogie?
4: She gets scratching for a living Was a hard scrabble life Oh, the poet, he was a farmer Working all day to ride all night Dig, dig, dick, dick Set that babble free
3: That
4: fox in the henhouse he won't ever let
0: you
4: be Didn't matter to him He his homestical type He gave words to the worthless He was fortified By the blood of a lamb He healed the field That he holds When the Lord called Elijah He went down to Jericho
2: Look away Okay, you know, we hear about eclectic and a blend. <laughs> it, it, this is everything. It, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't begin <clears throat> to identify all the different styles. And it's glorious the way it works.
4: <laughs> it's the credit to my band, you know, that I had a, I have a really great band. And this is a bunch of pr- people that I've been traveling with for about, four or five years touring solo just playing in bars and some theaters but you know mostly bars and um, we've had to spend a lot of time together in the van and so so this is the band and then that that there's a banjo player that played on this record that's uh, she's unbelievable her name's Allison Brown and she's one of the best seriously in the country and she was the guest in our band and then Kofi Burbridge from Tedeschi Trucks Band was our keyboard player and then we had a horn and string section as well so you know <laughs> That's what gives it the the thing that it has. I mean, we recorded live, and you do have those lyrics, Amy. Well, you know, yeah. I, I mean, they're pretty catchy. <laughs> thank you, but yeah, yeah thank you. It's, it's
2: fantastic. <laughs> when you were here last time, you spoke about how different your life, your family's life, and politics and worldviews differ from many of your neighbors in North Georgia, but that you find commonality um, helping each other out of you know the driveway when there's a snowstorm in Dahlonega, <laughs> yeah. and your lack of judgment and pigeonholing people because who they are, who they voted for, where they come from, is is so inspiring how do you do that (laughs) I want to know you know can can you inoculate like half the population with that Uh,
4: I mean it's I mean it's tempting to in this time we're also polarized and and we get angry you know because you want your way and you want you you think you know what's right so you know what I try to do is just be empathetic and you can't judge a book by its cover, and the one thing I've learned about living in Dahlonega for so long is that you, you really can't judge a book by its cover. I mean, you really never know where a person's coming from, or what made them feel that way, or what their history is, or why they vote the way they vote, and what problems they have, or or what triumphs they have. And so, I just try now to just listen. I mean, I was brought up, you know, my mom is still alive. My dad passed a while back, he was more conservative than I am. But he was a very generous and compassionate man, but and believed in really listening to people. But he was also very different from me politically. So I grew up in already having that conversation, you know, and and my extended family is very split, you know, politically. So it's just where I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable being around people that are different from me because I want to hear I don't want to be in a bubble. I don't think it's real and I think it takes all of us to solve problems. When I think it gets bad is when we start getting mean to each other and mean-spirited and mean and not having love as the basis of things. And that sounds idealistic but and it is, but it's like we got to start somewhere.
2: If there is one song on the album that sums that up it is Jesus was a walking man. <laughs> We only have three and a half minutes left, but if you could just give us the quickest synopsis of that, we'll go out listening to a track of it. The synopsis is, what would Jesus
4: do? (laughs) Yeah. That's basically the synopsis. At the border. With refugees and immigrants, and it's about love.
2: with the Grammy Award-winning folk rock artist Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls. She was talking about her solo album, Holler. The Indigo Girls will perform at the Amplify Decatur Music Festival on Saturday, October 2nd. Just ahead on City Lights... A painter known as the Warhole of Walmart, Brendan O'Connell. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright's. Thank you for listening. Known as the Warhole of Walmart, Brendan O'Connell has painted scenes at the famous shopping center around the nation for over a decade now. He grew up in Tucker, Georgia, and graduated from Emory University with a degree in philosophy and Spanish literature. He thought he was going to be a writer until he discovered his love for capturing the everyday person or scenes of the supermarket chain. I spoke with Brendan O'Connell a few years ago and asked what drew him to painting scenes of shopping.
1: I moved to Europe after going to Emory. And I spent seven years there. And when I came back, I had this desire to paint America hmm. and kind of, there weren't 1500 Walmarts when I left, but they were there when I came back. So it was definitely a noticeable entity. And I, I also live in the country in Connecticut and you don't see people until you actually go to a Walmart. Really? I, I, I'll go to my bank and I can say you know i'm the only one in line and can i get me a dog biscuit and a mortgage you know there's (laughs) like no one there but when you go to walmart you suddenly see vast numbers of people
2: now that you mentioned it, i remember reading that in a walmart in connecticut was it your wife my mother your mother had meryl streep in front of her And a woman in a muumuu in back of her. Precisely. Who who knew these famous people go to Walmart?
1: Who knew? Well, there's something very democratic about this space. Yes. That it's an enormous entity and it's the most visited interior architecture on the planet. And that's sort of why I was compelled to keep painting it. Maybe not why I started, but why I kept doing it.
2: Yeah, uh, some people decry Walmart as the epitome of evil. But through your years inside of the stores, have you reached a more nuanced conclusion about the role of the stores in American society?
1: Well, in many ways, it's like the U.S. government, it's massive. There are some amazing things about it and then some very public blunders and, and you can't get away from the whole story. It just kind of is part of the fabric of our society. So I I tend to not go for punchlines because I feel like the conversation stops when you hit a punchline and more just, if you paint six feet of Cheetos or cornflakes, some people read political statements in that and some people just think that's beautiful and I want it in my house.
2: (laughs) Have you had any um, contact from manufacturers? I remember Warhol exhibit at the High. I remember reading that Campbell Soup had contacted. They had no problem with, right, with right. what he was doing. Have you heard from manufacturers?
1: So, so I did some work for some of the S.C. Johnson family members, and I, did, I, I ended up doing some com- commissions for Walmart, and I ended up doing commissions for a grocery chain in Texas called H-E-B. So I, I've had some weird, more corporate
2: work as a result and of so. this. Do you find that in general... People are willing to be painted as they're shopping. Is it hard to explain the concept to them as you're doing it?
1: Well, I did several years doing portraits in the street in in Europe. And so I was able to engage with people from that experience. And that was somewhere along the line, I started thinking, how would I engage with people in an everyday in this place of Walmart and then follow them home and paint them in their everyday environment and i suggested that to Walmart and they were like please don't do that <laughs> <laughs> that could be very creepy yes um, and so but airbnb came along yeah. and provided this technology which allowed me to get into everyday americans homes and and I had the idea, and then Airbnb came along, and and it allowed me to go into people's environment. Well,
2: as you're describing it, Brendan, um, it doesn't seem so creepy when you think about how photographers are are well art photographers in particular, magazine photographers are invited into
1: people's homes. You. Just are doing it with a brush, with a brush, and also the fact that that we're in this very strange place where technology sometimes facilitates interaction and sometimes helps keep us apart. Mm-hmm. But in many ways, you know, we we don't want our mother-in-law to stay with us, but a stranger with a hundred bucks can have the guest room. <laughs> the transaction somehow makes it safe to let a stranger in your space.
2: If you are just joining me, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with the artist Brendan O'Connell, best known for his paintings inspired by Walmart. Do you think our lives are more affected by uh, the mundane, everyday tasks instead of major events? Is that part of what drew you to the Walmart art?
1: I like the idea of seeing something overlooked and trying to make something beautiful out of it. That that I find interesting. The I, the old, I mean, I went to Catholic school here, and the idea of kind of make a, making a sacrament out of an ordinary moment was, I saw that as an artistic idea.
2: Brendan, unlike many other successful artists, you didn't have any formal training, did you?
1: Not really. When I was 22, I was writing a novel about a group of painters, and I decided to teach myself how to draw because I had a character who was self-taught. You never
2: drew before that?
1: No, never.
2: And yet here you are in permanent museum collections and in the homes of some people who pay a great deal of money for your work, which
1: is great but how did you
2: get from
1: there to there you think it's going to happen instantly something happens and you're like oh i'm set now and then 15 years go by and nothing really happens and then uh, there there are a lot of peaks and valleys being a painter
2: your wife is also
1: a painter she is she she did the white emily buchanan she did the white house christmas card for the obamas Was that the one with the dog on the front? Uh, That was the one with yeah the paintings of the dogs in the in the hallway. Yes, yes. Yes. Oh, that's that's her.
2: Beautiful, but she prefers landscapes. Yes, you
1: are drawn to people. I well, I feel like I started doing a little bit of what she does. I just happen to do it inside. I paint the paved part of the earth, and she does. landscapes and so I'm doing plein air in Walmart or people's houses.
2: And you compared the aisles to boulevards of Paris.
1: Well there's something about the the way the Impressionists focused on every day you know the commercial life uh, as in Walmart kind of put boulevards underneath a roof you know they're very wide aisles and the concept of 15,000 SKUs being under one roof is, is uh, mind-boggling. It is. Would you talk about what happened in the
2: trajectory of your
1: relationship with Walmart? So that, it was funny because originally I would go in, I would take a few pictures, and someone would tap me on the shoulder and say, you're going to have to leave. <laughs> and, and then I would get a group of artists to go with me. And I would the goal I would buy them all lunch in exchange for taking a hundred pictures before they got thrown out
2: so this was in part because Sam Walton used to
1: take photos himself he did he did he, I mean, I think retailers have always investigated you know, other trade secrets, but I was more interested in the idea of wow, this people just come here and there's stuff and it was easy to predict the future that i had this image of my kids would tell their kids there was this place where you could go and there was a bicycle and a loaf of bread and that (laughs) and that none of that would exist i mean you saw it happen with barnes and noble and and you could predict that we're going in a direction where nobody nobody wants to leave their house The U.S.
2: is in another time of transition with the Me Too movement, groups like Black Lives Matter. Have you noticed these changes translated into the everyday?
1: It definitely makes you think a lot about how we appropriate images and how we use images, just what an image can mean.
2: Well, in terms of the trajectory of your Walmart experience, if, if we could return to that. There was a point where you stopped being thrown out. And in fact, you were contacted by corporate
1: Walmart. Well, I, I think I was on NPR in Boston. And I literally said, I've been thrown out of more Walmarts than most New Yorkers have ever been in. And I think I got a call 10 minutes later. From corporate Walmart. Yes. And they were like, we actually like what you do, and we'd like to make it easy on you to go do this.
2: And then Susan Orlean did a profile of you in the New York
1: group. Yes, yes. Every day I thank Susan Orlean and Jesus for my—because <laughs> that was like getting a lottery ticket for, for an artist, having her profile me. And the first phone call I got was from, you know, the Colbert Show. Okay, and, now you have and, reached the summit the summit.
2: The one summit. Of, one of the heroes. <laughs> Truly one of our nation's heroes. Yes. Or at least mine. Right, right. And um, how did Stephen react to all of it?
1: Well, he was very funny because the old show is different from the new show, obviously. But but he was very gracious and he came backstage and he said, you know, I love what you do, but I play a buffoon out there. So deal with it. <laughs> That that It was good advice and helpful, but...
2: I read that you have developed a friendship with Alec Baldwin, and in fact, he owns some of your
1: work. About, yeah, he owns a lot, but I've known him since 1995, so long before The New Yorker. And in fact, when he bought the first painting in 1995, I thought I was made, but it didn't happen for another 15 years. <laughs>
2: In the influences we talked about, of course, Warhol, I was hoping you would talk about Edward Hopper because while Warhol and Wayne Tibo with his pies and so cakes beautiful. are beautiful and sort of sunny and optimistic, Hopper, Hopper's work just seems to epitomize loneliness.
1: You know, if you look at the colors, he paints sad isolation with the most beautiful palette. Do you know what I mean? There's something very warm and beautiful, even though the light is cold and the subject matter is cold. I, I, I find him regularly enlightening. And and brands are kind of a cold idea and a neutral idea. And in some ways, nostalgia makes a memory warmer, and I feel like paint makes something innocuous like a brand warmer. Do you think you will move on from Walmart? Well, I, I've been doing the Airbnb, and I've been doing various forms of brands. I've been, uh, and I've been a closet abstract painter for most of my career. So. Really. So I I do a bit. In fact, the piece at Emory University in the Chemistry Building is all abstract.
2: Atlanta artist Brendan O'Connell. His work is in the permanent collection of the High Museum in Atlanta and the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens. You can also see his Walmart paintings on his website, brendanoconnell.com the national endowment for the arts has awarded emory university the our town grant to create the praise house project this project will allow the university to create public art installations dedicated to african-american history for the next two years Praise houses will be erected in three different locations within the Atlanta area. Praise houses were small wooden structures that enslaved people used for worship in the South. They would also use it as a place to gather and create a ring shout, a religious ritual performed through rhythmic movement as an act of resistance. Atlanta artist and activist Charmaine Minnifield partnered with Emory Arts to create the installations. The praise houses will be placed on the Emory campus, on the Decatur Square, And in the historic African-American-founded Southview Cemetery, alongside the Praise House on Emory's campus, there will be an exhibition by Minifield at the Carlos Museum titled Indigo Prayers. The grand opening of the Praise House project will be this Saturday. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about a new film project by the Artist's Climate Collective. Co-founder Keaton Lear joins Atlanta Ballet dancer-choreographer Darian Kane. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.